Hey there, everyone. It is then again with Glenn at the Northeast Georgia History Center bringing you your weekly podcast. And today we have one of my old and great professors from when I was in school at University of North Georgia, Dr. Richard Byers. Uh, Dr. Byers, tell us a little about yourself and why I am talking to you today. Hi, Glenn. It's great to be with you today. My name is Richard Byers. I'm a professor of European history at the University of North Georgia up here in Dahlonega. I have uh, some training as an aviation historian. Uh, My dissertation focused on German aviation pioneer Hugo Junkers and his development of uh, the German aviation industry in the early 20th century. So it's great to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So we want to kind of focus today on military aviation because I love military history and I know a lot of our listeners do too. But, you know, a lot of the things to keep in mind, folks, is that when the military develops something in the aviation sphere, it usually pretty quickly makes its way into the civilian sphere as well. That's just the, the natural course of the technology and the advancement. So Wright Brothers fly, you know, there's some controversy, not much. The Wright Brothers have the first powered flight in 1903. And only 11 years later, the world gets involved in one of the greatest conflicts in history, the First World War or the Great War. And that even that short amount of development time puts the aircraft at uh, by the end of the war at the forefront of military technology and tactics. Uh, Dr. Byers, can you tell us how that happened, how we got to that point and the effects it had on the war? Sure. Um, it's, 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 a, it's really a tremendous story of, of just how quickly military action and, and military engagements can accelerate technological change. When World War I began in 1914, most of the uh, belligerents had very little air capacity, if, if any at all. And the types of craft that they had available were not very much more advanced than what the Wright brothers had used 11 years before. They were very fragile machines made of cloth and and, uh, and wood and, and wire, they were quite difficult to operate and uh, quite dangerous. So it was, it was by no means a mainstream military technology in 1914. And in fact, most governments, when they thought about aerial military technology, they thought about observation balloons or zeppelins or you know, other types of uh, lighter than air powered craft. They did not think too much about heavier than air powered craft like aeroplanes. And so this was this was something that really took a lot of folks by surprise. But once the war began to become more static, particularly uh, on the Western Front, it quickly became clear how essential some form of aerial presence had become, uh, specifically, at least initially, in the form of reconnaissance and observation, the ability to be able to get beyond the eye line, get above the battlefield, and begin to get a bit more of an overall sense of what was taking place in your sector and and how you might be able to use this new knowledge and intelligence to uh, to outwit your enemy. And so World War I aviation evolved out of these observation and reconnaissance roles and soon took on an armed dimension because it wasn't long before both sides had these reconnaissance aircraft in the sky and they would often engage each other, come, come close to each other and before long, uh, you know, the initial waves and nods of acknowledgement turned into exchanges of fire. And as these reconnaissance aircraft began to uh, become armed, other opportunities and possibilities presented themselves. The, the air-to-air combat, of course, began and evolved out of this initial sort of reconnaissance standoff. 
ground attack uh, roles, you know, directly assaulting the trenches from the air also began to develop as a viable uh, a viable force projection platform. And, and so heavier-than-air aircraft began a, an intensive process of uh, evolution and, uh, and advancement, uh, a process that was uh, encouraged, of course, by this, this continual competition between uh, the Allies and the Central Powers to try and control the skies just because of the crucial uh, benefit that it gave you in terms of trying to prosecute trench warfare. And those, those initial air-to-air combats, I mean, you know, we, we think of dual, dual Vickers machine guns blasting away through propellers, but the first ones were literally them firing at each other with pistols and rifles, right? That is absolutely correct. And you can imagine, you know, just, just how, uh, you know, dangerous and at the same time how absurd uh, some of these early encounters must have been with almost no chance of you hitting your target and, and no chance of you being able to really inflict any damage on the enemy, you really engage more in a sort of a psychological shadow box than you really are in, 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 uh, in real combat. But as you point out, it wasn't long before uh, aerial gunnery became much more standardised, much more accurate, much more effective. Uh, the gun synchronisation technology originally developed by the Germans was quickly copied and emulated by the Allied powers and by sort of 1916, 1917, you've got these quite large, you know, aircraft fleets being employed by both sides for a variety of roles, you know, that uh, had not even been envisaged three years before. And many of these craft, of course, were far sturdier, far more uh, durable and, uh, and far more lethal than their ancestors of, you know, as I said, the previous season or in some cases, the, uh, the previous deployment. You know, uh, this was this was a big challenge for pilots was uh, the ability to to keep making these adjustments, moving from craft to craft as this process of uh, technological development accelerated. Unlike in the Second World War, where the pilot burnout was uh, was a concern and, and folks only flew a certain number of missions before they were allowed to leave combat service. Some of the aviators in World War One just continued to fly, you know, mission after mission, you know, putting their lives at risk for weeks, months, and even years at a time. And as you might imagine, this took a heavy psychological and, uh, and physical toll. Right. And, you know, the, some of the flyers, when we think of World War I aviation, I, well, when most people do, I think they think of, you know, the aces, Immelman and, and of course, the Red Baron, uh, Richthofen and their specific planes and how people look to them sort of as the, you know, the knights of the air, somewhere where individuality could actually stand out and make a difference in what was otherwise just a faceless slugfest down on the ground. Absolutely. And of course, these, these famous aces were very uh, useful propaganda uh, tools uh, for their governments. You know, this is the sort of stuff that you could put into, you know, journalism and news media of the time. That, you know, despite the censorship restrictions, that would capture uh, popular imagination and, uh, you know, motivate popular support for the larger war effort. Many of these aces uh, become effectively celebrities. Uh, you know, some of uh, the 20th century's first sort of, you know, major popular figures who develop, you know, significant popular followings, the sorts of things today that would, you know, create a, you know, a massive social media presence, for example. That's the sort of thing that would have surely followed someone like uh, Manfred von Richthofen or, you know, even the great, the famous American ace, Eddie Rickenbacker. You know, so the, these guys, yes, they, they were they were much, much more larger than life and, and they did provide and create a face that the public could identify and associate with uh, the larger war effort. 
Right. I mean, they sold bubblegum cards of these guys. <laughs> so the aces themselves were warriors in their own right. They were forces to be reckoned with in the air. But something that was going to become a much larger trend in World War II, in World War One, somehow the Allies really got the upper hand because of the production war, the ability to create sometimes better, but always more aircraft than the than the Germans. Can you sort of take us through that process and, and the effect that that had and how that began to set us up for the for the interwar years? Absolutely. The uh, superior productive capacity of the Allied nations in the First World War and in the Second World War is clearly one of the larger factors that helps explain Allied victory. We were fortunate in the First World War in that there was already a very well-developed and, and very uh, highly efficient French motor vehicle and aviation industry in place uh, when the war began. The British were a little behind the French uh, in 1914, but through assistance from France and through their own efforts in terms of wartime expansion, soon built up a strong and robust aircraft uh, production and industrial base. And yes, once the United States entered the war in 1917, French and uh, British designs and uh, French and British production experience was now available for American manufacturers to uh, draw from and enable them to get up to speed very quickly in terms of being able to use America's productive capacity to begin to churn out huge numbers of these European uh, aircraft designs and very soon American aircraft designs. By contrast, the central powers were not in a favourable position in terms of their pre-war industrial base or uh, the base that they were able to develop and expand during wartime. The lack of uh, available raw materials and the uh, shortages of things like oil meant that uh, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians were not really in a position to be able to develop a large and extensive aircraft production program before really the last year of the war. And by that time, of course, particularly Austria-Hungary was almost exhausted and almost quit the war by that point, was producing almost nothing. And German industry was running rapidly out of resources, rapidly out of uh, steel and other essential elements needed for the production of, you know, sort of this, this new generation of aircraft. And so in order to meet these production targets of, you know, 1,000 aircraft a month, 2,000 aircraft a month that the, the German high command required, German aircraft manu uh, manufacturers were, were forced to engage in all sorts of imaginative, out-of-the-box thinking in terms of gaining access to supplies, gaining the support of the popular air aces, and so on. And so a lot of uh, skullduggery and uh, shenanigans went on, particularly between uh, you know the, the more famous manufacturers, people like Anthony Fokker, for example, the Dutchman who, you know, who had, had uh, in some ways helped uh, propel German aviation to its to its uh, height in sort of the middle of the war. Fokker was uh, all over Germany in the last year, desperately uh, you know trying to shore up his uh, flies of resources and uh, cajoling others into manufacturing planes for him, that type of stuff. It was not as well organized, not as much of a centralized effort, and not as well directed as the Allied effort. And in the end, despite the fact that many German air platforms were, in many ways, technologically superior to their Allied counterparts, the Allies' ability, as you pointed out, to produce superior numbers and to be able to support and sustain those numbers in the field really did begin to have, you know, a major uh, impact on the uh, on the last months of uh, World War One. German air force basically uh, began to dwindle into insignificance, particularly after the uh, spring offensives. 
while the Allies began to be able to throw more and more planes into the air uh, and create a situation of almost complete air superiority, which uh, certainly hastened the uh, process of, uh, of Allied advance in the last months of World War One. The German aircraft efforts in World War One and the Allied response, and then the similarities of World War II is one of those great examples of history may not repeat, but it certainly does rhyme. Couldn't agree more, Glenn. Um, it's, it's important, of course, not to take those comparisons too far, but th- there's no doubt that when you assess and analyze the comparative Allied and Axis efforts at building and sustaining a viable uh, air power and, uh, and aviation arm in World War II, the Germans do seem to stumble through so many of the same problems that they had encountered uh, in the previous generation. Well, you know, and, and speaking of that, let's let's if you would take us to the point of, you know, the the Allies emerged victorious in nineteen eighteen. The Treaty of Versailles the following year basically eliminates Germany's ability to have any military powered aircraft in addition to other limitations to their military forces. Tell us how we go from a point where Germany is forbidden, you know, powered military aviation to say 1940, when it's the Air Force to be most feared in the entire world? That's a great question, and uh, it's, 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 it's a fabulous story. As you say, uh, Versailles expressly prohibited possession of military aircraft by, uh, by the German Republic. By this time, of course, the German Empire had disappeared, the Kaiser had gone off to exile in Holland. And, of course, this initially appeared to be devastating to, uh, to German uh, aircraft producers and the German aviation industry more generally until they began to look more closely at the provisions of the treaty and realised that there was an opportunity to transition their aircraft production away from military types to civilian types, in that the Versailles Treaty had not expressly forbidden civilian aircraft from being used or uh, with either within or across uh, German airspace. And uh, given the need, uh, the uh, motivations of many of the allied aircraft manufacturers to try and keep their businesses going after the end of the war and, and uh, the, you know, the subsequent, uh, you know, immediate post-war slump, this offered a window of opportunity for German aircraft manufacturers to get back into the game. The other way they approach uh, the Versailles prohibitions is they begin to offshore their manufacturing and production facilities. For example, uh, Hugo Junkers, uh, who was in the process of making this transition himself during this period, relocates a number of his uh, uh, manufacturing facilities to Sweden and to Turkey as a way of circumventing the Versailles restrictions and allowing him to continue his, uh, his business and continue his processes of trying to improve aviation technology. The other thing that's going to happen in the early 1920s, of course, is that the two pariah states of Europe, the uh, German Republic and the newly created uh, Soviet Union, are going to arrange secret coordination and are going to secretly uh, you know, set up operations within the Soviet Union that will enable German and Soviet military processes and practices to proceed. And this allows the Germans to continue to clandestinely develop and work on military aviation, while at the same time ostensibly honouring the terms of the Versailles Agreement. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's an important thing to point out that all of, well, much of this was going on before Hitler and the Nazis came to power. This was, this was just Germany, correct? 
that's absolutely right. And, and this is something that is, uh, you know, often, uh, you know, overlooked uh, when we think about this story is that it is uh, while Hitler and the Nazis are going to take all the credit for uh, Germany's military rearmament, the real credit must go to their Weimar predecessors, who, of course, secretly and consistently supported Germany's clandestine military capability throughout the 1920s and 30s, despite being expressly prohibited from doing so. Part of this resistance and, and part of this defiance had to do with a sense of, on, on, from the German side that the Allies had reneged on promises made to them when they signed the Versailles Agreement, in which the Allies had pledged themselves to a wider process of global military disarmament once the Germans had made the first move. And so the Germans signed the Versailles Treaty assuming that they would be the first, but certainly not the last, to abandon these areas of military capability. And when it became clear in the early 1920s that the Allies had no such intentions, well, the Germans didn't feel like they were, uh, you know, being hypocritical by entering into this secret negotiation and agreement with the Soviets. From an objective point of view, one can hardly blame them, I think. If that if that's, you know, taking that perspective of it, if, if everyone else is cheating, but you're trying to play by the rules, you're going to stop playing by the rules. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the, the sort of uh, chaotic nature, of course, of international relations. Right. Never play diplomacy with friends, the real thing exactly. or the game. And, and, sure. and, so, and, and so following up and, and answering the rest of your question, this meant that by the time the Nazis came to power in 1933, German military aviation technology had progressed considerably, you know, in some cases progressing beyond the efforts of their former allied rivals as a result of this uh, offshore, you know, manufacturing capability and these secret, uh, uh, secret relationships with the USSR. And uh, the, the uh, early and mid-1930s would see the appearance of a number of these very new, impressive, ultra-modern German aircraft types that had, had abandoned the old cloth and, uh, and uh, wood manufacture for, uh, for uh, the use of metal, particularly aluminum and also uh, various steel components as well. These uh, cockpit configurations had moved away from an open cockpit to a closed, you know, sort of sealed cockpit environment. And the one thing that you must always reckon with when we talk about military aviation is that when we talk about it in, in a pre-jet context, the engine is the key element. Aircraft engine technology had begun to evolve uh, significantly as well. Uh, by the early 1930s, you were able to uh, produce engines of a much smaller size with a much greater uh, thrust to weight ratio and much better fuel economy than you had seen in the past as well which meant that by the early and mid-1930s, aircraft were lighter, they were faster, they were more manoeuvrable, they had a higher top speed. Before long, they, they were able to reach much higher altitudes as well. And this, this is really the dawning, of course, of, of the modern aviation age and the, and the, the uh, process of transition from these, you know, quite fragile sort of uh, flimsy machines than the types that you'd seen early in World War I to a far more rugged and durable airframe capable of, of far greater performance and powered by a much more reliable and much more durable engine. Well, I mean, and, you know, that's the, the story of the Luftwaffe, especially in the early part of the, of the Second World War, is fascinating. But, and, and, you know, here, here's the hard question that it's hard to, to put so briefly, but if anyone can do it, you can. What were the major factors or the major factor in Germany losing the edge 
as far as air superiority between 1940 and 1945? It's a great question. Um, based on their uh, ability to, as I said, uh, gain an edge versus the Allies in the late no- in the mid and late 1930s, and of course this is this is directly due to the fact that Hitler's an authoritarian dictator and he can he can introduce economic you know programs without regard for for public or political dissent or or financial sustainability. And this had allowed him to build up and expand the size of the Luftwaffe to a size where it was much larger and and much more capable than any of its you know sort of uh, potential rivals at that time, with with perhaps one exception of the Soviet Air Force, uh, which of course was operating under similar circumstances under Stalin's dictatorship. And so the the constraints with uh, associated with democracy, the constraints associated with you know, really anemic Depression-era budgets meant that the Western democracies really were not capable of developing uh, a a large and and efficient standing air force at all, really before the Second World War began. And so this meant that, you know, the fascist powers, the Italians and the Germans, who were not under these constraints, held a huge advantage uh, when the war began in 1939 in Europe, in similar ways that the Japanese did in, in Asia, uh, where the war had begun a couple of years earlier. So it would take time. It would take time for the, for the democratic powers to, of course, repurpose their industries, you know, adjust to the new wartime realities, organise uh, their productive capacity and, and develop plans of, of, of manufacture and, and uh, deployment that would be effective and would be, uh, would be sustainable. I'm sure many of your listeners might be aware of this, but many may not. The lead time associated with, you know, blueprint to production line for aviation during this period is anywhere between 24 and 60 months. And so that's a long time lag. And, and so it, it's unsurprising, perhaps, given those realities, those, those sort of larger sort of, back, uh, you know, back of house forces, that the Allied air forces are completely outmatched and, uh, and, and completely uh, overwhelmed by uh, the Luftwaffe and, and to some degree the Italians, you know, in the first year or so of the war. But of course, that advantage will not last forever. The Allies, as I said, during the First World War had developed effective processes of production and, and manufacturing. These old, uh, you know, these old plants were dusted off, upgraded, uh, you know, uh, revamped and, uh, and redeployed, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States after the French, uh, the conquest of France and uh, began to produce dividends, you know, within a couple of years of, uh, of their deployment. In other words, by 1942-1943, the Allies are producing many, many times the number of aircraft that the Germans are, are capable of producing, and they're also training a larger number of aircrew and developing the surrounding support infrastructure that, that air power requires, you know, the, the maintenance crews, the, the, uh, the, the facilities, the the supply chains that supply both that much to a much greater extent than their German counterparts. Some of this has to be, uh, you know, understood contingently. The Germans had been successful in, in most of their early campaigns. Their tactical aircraft, you know, like the Ju-87 dive bombers, the Stukas and others had performed well in Poland and in Western Europe. Because of this efficiency and success, there was quite a bit of complacency at the higher levels of the Luftwaffe and at the higher levels of the Nazi leadership about the need to constantly improve and evolve aircraft, constantly improve, evolve and standardise aero engine manufacture, you know, all the types of things that, uh, of course, 
if you're on the losing end, you're going to be thinking about and you're going to have to be, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, dealing with and, and trying to overcome. In other words, the Axis powers learn little from their early success, but the Allied powers learn much from their initial failures. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I think that's, that's an important lesson for everyone to learn from governments down to each one of us. That's a, you know, you, you do. You learn more from failure than success most times. Yeah, and of course, you know, being on the losing end of, of these aerial engagements, uh, you know, really did prompt, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of soul searching and, and a lot of in-depth thinking on the Allied side about how air power should be best used and, and in what ways it could be most effective and successful. And a lot, of, uh, a lot of the answers to those questions came down to, well, the Germans have done an excellent job in organising tactical air power and deploying it effectively. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel. We will take many of their precedents, we will build on them, and we will expand them. And so uh, you see this with, uh, with Allied aerial operations uh, really beginning in, uh, you know, even in this earlier phase of the war, an attempt to mimic and emulate German successful uh, approaches to varying degrees of success. And then once we were able to, you know, develop our own, uh, you know, approaches and doctrines, merge and blend those together with uh, the successful uh, German precedents to create a really a, a devastating counterattack. Combined with our superior industrial and productive capacity, this creates a situation for the Germans which uh, quickly becomes untenable. That's perfect. Uh, Dr. Byers, I could go on all day, but we are starting to run out of time. I have uh, one more very, very important question for you. You have studied a lot of military aviation in your time. What's your favorite plane and why? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I think my, my favorite plane would have to be, uh, you know, one of, one of the ones that's closest to my heart, the old Junkers JU-52, the old transport plane that had first been developed uh, by the Germans in the late 1920s. It was still going strong uh, by the time the war in Europe began in the 1930s, and it would serve as the Luftwaffe's aerial supply and aerial transport workhorse for the next six years of the war. You would see it on every front. You would see it in every theatre. And as I said, uh, the, the, the machine became sort of uh, eponymous with uh, the German aerial presence. And uh, so reliable an airframe was it that even after the Second World War ended, it continued to fly. And in fact, uh, it would continue to fly in various places until the end of the 20th century. I was uh, told by uh, one of my students who had served in Afghanistan that at the Bagram Air Force Base, uh, when the Americans had first arrived, there was a Ju-52 on the side of the airfield there in Bagram that apparently had been flyable up until about a couple of years before 2001. And so for that reason, because of its longevity, because of its amazing service in so many different roles all around the world during the 20th century, I'm going to have to give my, uh, give my nod to the Ju-52 but I think I'm a little bit biased in that. Oh, and that's fine. You know, not an expected answer, but an eminently logical one. Dr. Byers, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a fascinating topic. There's so much history with aviation, not just military, but, you know, it's, it's an important role in, in 20th century and, and early 21st century history. Maybe we can have you on again sometime, if that would be okay. Glenn, I would love to uh, be back on the show anytime. Just let me know. Thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, that's, uh, that's going to be it for this edition of Then Again. We hope you stay tuned. Check us out. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us 
on Instagram and check our website for things and upcoming events. And until we see you next time, stay safe, take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.